Hello and welcome to Tools in the Shed, a podcast powered by Cars Guide, ready to rip into car stuff that has caught our eye this week. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and with me is Senior Editor Matt. Hello. And a key contributor, Byron. He contributes. In a week that's seeing the dealer signage coming down all over the country, we'll look at what might have been for Holden. Uh, we'll look at some fresh metal in the Cars Guide garage and we'll hint at some secret stuff too. And we'll catch up with a bloke who's not short of a quid in this week's Muskwatch. So stay with us. But first, some feedback from last week, which is always terrific to receive. Thank you. And our key topic of conversation last time round was the new Isuzu D-Max and Toyota Hilux. And interesting to note that most of the feedback was around the D-Max. The Hilux seemed somewhat unloved in terms of people giving us their thoughts. Lots of compliments for the D-Max. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Fuller, Andre Bajur, he says he's actually waiting for the MUX. Um, Michael Lee, uh, he noted that it's the best-selling, he alleges it's the best-selling ute in Thailand. Um, and Thailand is um, something of a ute capital of the world. Yep. Yep. So he extrapolates that out to think that, well, it must be doing something, right, if it's doing well in Thailand. Yep. Um, which I thought was interesting. Wax Triple Three, he has a 4x4 MR Triton uh, after selling his 4x2 D-Max, and he misses the D-Max very much, uh, basic as it was, and he's a possible customer for the new one. So he's nice. uh, thinking he'll line up, get rid of the Triton, and get into a D-Max. Well, it's certainly not basic anymore. No. No, <laughs> that's true. Absolutely not. Uh, uh, David, also, sorry, go ahead, to that t- so I was just to say further to that tie, uh, sales situation, I think uh, the D-Max is pretty much the new kid on the block at the moment, yeah. and there's nothing new really around. Yeah. Not yeah. long, but yeah. As so, we yeah, know, yeah. All, the, all the dual cab utes in that segment are built in Thailand for the majority, yeah. apart from the Amarok, um, and I think the... Uh, Navara is built in Spain. Oh, some of them were built in Spain or something. Okay. Um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But, yeah, Thailand is that that size uh, segment. Um, that's where, that's where it's it all the happens. nucleus. Yes, you know? it's, yes, It's yes. where it all happens. Yes. Um, but, yeah, obviously the US is the biggest pickup market in the entire world. That's right. Yeah. But emphasis on the word biggest because yeah. most of them are a lot bigger. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, now David Birdie Burt um, oh. said, look, great podcast, guys. Thank you. Loved it, exclamation mark. Um, Back to the Future joke was great. He thought that was a nice way out of last week's program, so thank you. Uh, it's not a joke, really. My, my friend does have a DeLorean for sale, and it has only been used from time to time. So, you know, it's still, it's still on the market. Um, the D-Max looks good, he says, but thinks it's a case of struth and gold star for use of the word struth, by the way. And although I think the spelling is a question mark there, he's gone S-T-R-U-T-H, whereas um, I think it's S-T-R-E-W-T-H. It is E-W-T-H. Uh, just splitting hairs there on um, Aussie uh, <laughs> slang. Uh, it does look a lot like the old one. He's concerned about the numbers, i.e. the power and torque outputs uh, mm-hmm. on the engine, because the competition will be upping outputs over the next year or so. So he yep. likes the look of it, thinks it might be a little bit down on, on grunt. Yeah, I, um, I sort of thought the same thing when I saw the figures. Um, it's, it's not quite as uh, bolshy as some of the other uh, four-cylinder utes out there. I mean, we've just seen Hilux go to 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres for the 2.8, yeah. um, where the the new, what's it called, 4JJ3TCX engine in the <laughs> D-Max has 140 <laughs> kilowatts and 450 yeah. newton metres. So yeah. there is, uh, straight away, it is behind um, the, the best-hitting four-cylinder engines in the market. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I imagine that Isuzu... Um, builds a lot of reliability into the engine and uh, is more focused on maybe it lasting longer than it it's being bulletproof. faster. Yeah, so, and it'll yeah. last forever. Yeah, that's true. I suppose um, it's such a competitive market that every, depending on your priorities, every little advantage counts mm-hmm. a lot. So, yes, if it's a considered decision to improve reliability and durability, um, fair enough, but some are just going to want that extra um, you know, power uh, yep. for towing or whatever it might be. Yep, understand that completely. Yeah. All right. Now, Neza, our old mate Neza said, look, lane keep, rear tra- cross traffic monitor, blind spot monitoring. I remember the pure presence and intimidation of having a big ute 
was enough, uh, you know, in terms of the, the safety. Your blind spot monitoring was everybody else on the road watching you and making sure they're the ones not in your blind spot. Uh, um, still, so gets cold, still gets cold chill up his spine when he parks his new Serato GT uh, next to any old hardworking ute with a scratched up tray, mm-hmm. especially one that's parallel parked its tow bar centimetres from his grill. So uh, it's true, you know, utes have come such a long way. When yep. you're mentioning all of that um, active safety tech in the same breath um, exactly. as a dual cab ute. It was just a couple of years ago when Mitsubishi uh, refreshed the, the Triton, or they said it was a new Triton, but it was a heavily revamped Triton, um, that we saw some of this active safety tech come on board. And, you know, that was the benchmark. The benchmark then shifted to Ford Ranger and and, and also the X-Class and also the Sangyong uh, Musso, and mm. now this uh, new D-Max seems to have pushed the benchmark even further up. And obviously, we're going to see uh, a BT50 with probably identical or you know very very similar uh, levels of safety technology. So um, the rest of the field is falling behind once again. You know, you yep. can't win. It's it's just a constant stream of improvement. Yeah, and yep. I mean Mazda is the one that's been across its range pushing pretty hard on the safety thing. Yeah. Um, so, yes, you'd have to be right with BT50, the shared model and all that. It'll be uh, at a broadly similar level, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, then we also touched on Fortuna, the, the uh, sibling, as it were, of the Hilux, so SUV. And TGV, the very fast train, um, he says Fortuna's launch in 2015 was purely Toyota aiming up at Ford's Everest, which was in turn pitched against the Prado, um, he quotes Toyota predicting 6,000 sales annually, which is around 500 a month. So he sees it as more a defensive move to stop those who couldn't stretch to a Prado buying an Everest um, and keep them in the Toyota family, which I thought was an um, interesting perspective. So mm. not just um, having a go at the overall volume, but seeing it as a more strategic play in a, a multi kind of model SUV uh, range. Yeah, and, well, yeah, how many, yeah, well, how many the, options? Sorry, Byron, I was going to say, how many options are there in the Toyota land for uh, four-wheel drive or SUV with seven seats? It's plenty. Mm. Yeah. And uh, and actually, further to TGV. Uh, TGV? TGV. Yeah. <laughs> TGV Sport, yep. Um, very fast trains point that... Uh, actually, that gave, that probably gave Toyota the, uh, the opportunity to probably push the Prado further up market and therefore make more money. So, yes. Yes, yeah, a little that more cream on the be. Prados. Yes, yep. good point. Um, yep. Hammer rocks, our old mate Hammer. Simple explanation for the Fortuna's underperformance, dot, 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 it's ugly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> make it look less like an SUV and more like a tough off-roader US Toyota 4Runner style um, selling well in North America, um, yep. considering how basic it is. He'd, he'd go that way. Wax Triple Three came back and said, nothing wrong with it, looks fine to him, just thinks we have too much choice. Um, from Toyota. There you go. So that, that was that. And then we got into more general feedback, which was a really interesting and mixed bag um, this week. Um, <laughs> Yamal Kumarasari, uh, Siri, said, that's not a picture of the Renault. That's Richard Skoda. And that's right. Um, last week, we ran <laughs> pictures of Richard Skoda rather than the uh, Renault Kadja, I think, that he'd been driving. Yeah. And that was because we were so wrapped in, in Richard's story about his home life and uh, family living in that car. So well, well picked. Your He's not his family living in that car. <laughs> Look, yeah, from time to time, I think they have. I'm, I think I'm not he sure. He's to it. Yeah, that's right. And to that end, Andrew D says, Richard, I've got a 2017 Skoda Superb Sportline four-wheel drive 206 wagon. Wow. That's a mouthful. Uh, Say that three times quickly, he says. Nice car. Uh, Absolutely love it. Fast, quiet, handles, and capacious. Thumbs up. Can't afford that beautiful Audi, so I'm thinking of chipping mine better than a hot SUV. So there you go. He's completely thrilled with his superb sport line. Um, Jacob Melbourne, and that's his name. I don't think he's, he may be in Melbourne, but his name is Jacob, <laughs> Jacob Melbourne. Um, I used this in my online class to get out of work. So happily, we've somehow helped Jacob avoid some work, whether it's oh, an online class at good work, high school, good work. university, TAFE, somewhere. So glad to be of help there, Jacob. Nice. And Spoken Jim like a Danik, true Melbourneian. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Jim Danik reminded UM4 that the HSV version of the Holden Adventurer was an avalanche. It was, We were yeah. trying to come up with that name. And that's pertinent to our, our conversation just a little later on, actually. Yeah. Um, the Adventurer particularly. Um, TGV came back in again and said, in all caps, with an exclamation mark at the end, long live the mighty AU Falcon. <laughs> now, 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 that's that's a sentiment I don't disagree with. Yeah. I'm just, I was struggling for context. Did, did we touch on the AU Falcon last week, Matt? Um, we might I have. Someone rushed upon us, it. But, but TGV, the very fast train, is all about the AU Falcon. So yep. good on him. Yep. Good on him. Um, then Jayesh Meta said to Richard, no, I don't work for the Highway Patrol. Uh, but only recently got my licence, hence sticking to speed limit for the test. This was our friend in Brisbane who was wondering out loud why the performance SUVs, why the high-speed performance cars, when we're all limited by such draconian kind of uh, measures like speed yep. cameras and, and what have you. Um, he said, also, as for Mars travel, and this, of course, related to Muskwatch, uh, <laughs> I believe climate change is going to get far worse for mankind before countries band together to make the Earth healthy again. Probably Elon is just hedging his bets to wait it out on the moon or Mars. Or it could be something as simple as mining more resources for his batteries. And I think that that goes to the number, but he's mm. probably not far off the truth, really. Yeah. Um, and then David Burt, um, Byron, being in Melbourne, you'll relate to this. He said, you blokes driving around Sydney together? Oh, that's right. You're in New South Wales. Um, <laughs> Perhaps the car's guy dishwasher, and we were talking about the fact that a dishwasher would fit in the back of Richard's Skoda, is a new benchmark. Get rid of the pram and the suitcase and just have a dishwasher that we put in the car. So that's not a bad idea. I've mocked one up. People on YouTube will be able to see um, the car's guy dishwasher. Excellent. And to finish off, Gulam Dust Gear gave us another 17 thumbs up, which uh, brings the Dust Gear thumbs up tally, which I call the D-Tut. It's now at 51. We've cracked half a century. 51 thumbs up. Thank so you. We, we are doing something right. Thank you very much, Gulam. But we'll now move on to a really fascinating subject. And Byron, you're in the driver's seat here because you authored a really interesting story uh, based on a lot of background information that you've obviously um, dug out over a period of time about what might have been for Holden. A lot of it seems to hinge around Holden's plans in the late noughties and the GFC and the big hole that it punched in things. But just there were a few key cars that were potentially on the cards for here and export. Can you fill us in on, on some of the detail on that one? Oh, absolutely, James. Um, so, and it really breaks my heart and is quite sad to know that Holden got so close to yeah. having a whole family of VE Commodore based models and probably the top of the, uh, the bunch, the top of the tree there was a four territory rival, uh, which we've since learned was known internally as the Holden Nullarbor. All right. So we're, wow. yep, so we're talking about a, a large uh, five or seven seater, all wheel drive or rear wheel drive SUV uh, using VE mechanical. So we're talking the uh, 3.6 litre alloy tech as yep. well as the, uh, the V8s. Yep. Uh, which would have actually given it a point of difference in that segment at the time. But mm. It was a perfect storm of uh, GM kind of going backwards internationally and losing money left, right and centre, um, rocketing fuel prices and the yeah. fact that uh, Holden just pretty much overstretched itself yes. and, uh, and the decision was made uh, to go for the Captiva instead. Yes, oh. yes. Uh, what so a, that what was, a that was a bit of contrast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what we're talking about here is a car that would have – uh, jumped on the wave of SUV, uh, like the, the tidal wave of SUV um, acceptance, not just in Australia, but globally, this vehicle would have had enormous export potential as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, given that the rear wheel drive, uh, the V Zeta architecture had uh, left hand drive. Um, yes. Um, in through Camaro. Yeah. And also the Pontiac, uh, the Pontiac Correct. G8 as well. Absolutely. Uh, yes. And the, and later, of course, the uh, the Chevrolet version, the um, the Chevrolet V8. SS. Which is, so escape me. The SS, yeah. yeah. SS, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, that's heartbreaking. And uh, I, I got this from a former Holden Insider who uh, <clears throat> who told me <laughs> at a car launch at a, for another company he was working at. Years later, we are having drinks, and he was telling me that uh, this particular car 
in his eyes, look like what the second generation BMW X5 turned out looking. I so see. you had so you had kind of a muscular stance wow. and uh, kind of uh, blistered wheel arches uh, within a VE context. So yes. and it was a proper large square three row SUV. I, my heart just breaks. Well, the, the, the irony the so irony close. is, isn't it though that as Holden started to go wobbly, you know, at the knees. The, the common wisdom was, well, why weren't they onto an SUV? You know, that's obviously where the market was going. And here it turns out that they absolutely were. It was just external forces that, that uh, crueled its chances. Absolutely. Uh, they invested so much. I mean, everyone knows the billion-dollar baby that was the VE project. They invested so much on getting the sedan and the wagon and the, and the utes to market as well yep. as a whole bunch of other variants, which um, I can touch on briefly later. But, yeah, definitely the um, Holden was very aware of a crossover. And that leads me to the second car, because yes. there was also going to be a, an adventure replacement. Yes. Oh. Uh, yes. So we're talking Subaru Outback-style VE Commodore uh, uh, with more ground clearance, obviously yep. the all-wheel drive system, which was developed but never, uh, never really came to fruition for that. Yeah, uh, was going to come in t- to this car, and um, because it was going to be based on, um, we we understand it was going to be based on the V Sport Wagon. This was going to be uh, kind of marketed or pitched as as a more compact alternative to yep. the Holden Nullarbor. And gotcha. uh, I I hear it was a stunner, right. really good looking thing. Right. Yeah. As, right. which doesn't surprise us. Yeah, and yeah. and there um, was there was also to be a a, a, a crewman style. You that I presume would sit on the same length wheelbase. Correct, correct. Um, uh, that was the other thing. The uh, uh, Holden was going to do this car was uh, this V uh, platform was going to also have another crewman, uh, which would have had a larger interior because the VY slash VZ crewman had quite a tight back seat. You guys may okay. recall it was yep. quite upright. Um, but this was also going to have a, a, a removable canopy. As per uh, uh, the only example I can think of was, do you remember the Nissan Exa, the second generation Exa, had I a removable canopy where yes. you could have made, it had a wagon version, but we never I got see, that in Australia. I yeah. see. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, maybe that will pop up um, in, in somewhere up there um, in, as a photograph. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, and yeah, and there was also a one tonner. Uh, there was going to be a VE uh, uh, tray as well, which we yeah. never got officially. Yeah. Um, as well as all wheel drive versions of all those cars. Now, wow. the, the all-wheel drive was something that was shown publicly. That Coupe 60 was all-wheel drive, wasn't it? Mm, correct. So would, would that have oh. been the system that was, that was semi-planned for those other variants? Uh, I, I, I assume so because the all-wheel drive, uh, we also have since learned that Saab was going to pick up a couple of these VE variants. So yep. we know for sure that they were going to take the sedan as a flagship. Because yes. um, a, um, a, uh, I, I spoke to the, the, the designer who actually moved to Melbourne, got his kids in a school in Melbourne and bought a place in Melbourne <laughs> for, the, uh, for the year to two You're years that he was kidding. going to spend here. You're kidding. Uh, and, a, and a month into his, um, his stay uh, in the, in the uh, leafy uh, Bayside suburb that he was, he was based at, as well as Port Melbourne, of course, that um, GM had cut that project, so there was going to be it was going to be like the nine 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 nine. There was going to yeah. yeah. The, there was also going to and of course being a Nordic country, they, they needed the four wheel drive system. There was right. also going to be um, probably a the SUV version, the Anulable version of the Saab, and we probably reckon that the uh, that adventure style all wheel drive Outback as well probably would have yes. had a so, would have got a Guernsey. So looking at it more broadly, this. If this VE platform thing had happened, Saab could have been saved. That's right. So we're, I, we're talking that, about... An, yeah. It's a lengthy boat to draw marks. there. I, think. I would draw it, though, because... You <laughs> would know, you? If, yeah, yeah. I think Saab... Um, well, I think it still has, um, for a lot of people out there, it's it's a recognisable brand that people wish would, would still be around. And, and I, if it I, had had... I completely hear you. I, I just think that GM did its best to ruin that brand through <laughs> not understanding it at all. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you know, the things they true. did to that brand, the torture they put it through before they actually finally put a, put a gun through it, you know, to its head, yeah. um, were, were tragic. 
Yeah, and yes. I guess that they obviously, well, having not done this, then that just proves your point, JC. But yeah, um, the, I, I reckon uh, a larger Saab SUV and uh, yep. a number of Saab derivatives built off the same platform could have saved the brand. Well, the, the other but, thing, Byron, the flexibility of that, that Zeta uh, platform was evidenced by that Tirana uh, show car that we saw, and it, it was still on that same platform, but a smaller vehicle overall, and that was slated. Correct. I mean, it, it basically had the VE interior, or at least the dash design yeah, um, yeah, in it, much. which was a massive and, and, clue and the, and the at the time. Yeah. That's right, and the design cues as well. I mean, they were very uh, – at the time, we thought it looked a bit like the European Vectra, the second-generation Vectra yeah. that we had in Australia, but, in fact, it was much closer to the VE um, design language. Yeah, exactly. The, the other thing is that it's. I'm glad you mentioned the TT36 concept, which was yep. the 2004 motor show Sydney motor show car that you're talking about, because that car also had a sister car uh, based on the Commodore platform, uh, the larger Commodore body, uh, which was called the VE Shooting Brake. So we're right. talking about a three door hatchback version of the Monaro, the Coupe 60, with a liftback that that basically didn't have the the um, the boot bit that probably would have lent itself as yet another Saab niche vehicle for export. Now, Byron, it, it was only it was it was only a few minutes ago you were talking about Holden um, stretching too far. I think that <laughs> yeah, exactly. the last couple of minutes of conversation is pretty strong evidence of that. <laughs> but but yeah, that's right. But gentlemen, you've got to remember, um, and also viewers as well, that um, Holden had a global perspective. Yes. had a global strategy with the Z platform. So yeah. what might not have worked in Australia, and, we, and this shooting break, VE shooting break is probably an example of that, there would have been a ready market for that uh, in Europe, definitely maybe with a Saab brand, but also under the Oldsmobile, Pontiac, um, yes. where, where, where those GM brands in North America would have probably loved that sort of thing. And don't forget, we also had the Saturn brand as well mm -hmm. under, the, yes. GM, under yes. the GM thing at the time. So there was... There were what, uh, uh, like seven or eight different outlets. Um, yes, yes. And it's it's also evidence, is it not, of what a vibrant place Holden was at that time, mm. in terms yeah. of its design studio, its engineering capabilities. It was just ready to absolutely, pardon the pun, roar when <laughs> um, you know the GFC just clamped down on on everything, seemingly. Correct, correct. Um, and the and these were uh, that. That vibrancy was was driven by people like Bob Lutz, the yes. uh, the the product czar, the car czar of General mm -hmm. Motors at the time, who was a huge, car, still is a huge car enthusiast, yes. and uh, just wanted drivers' cars within Holden and saw the potential as well as the investment um, yes. um, return on on having Holden deliver these sort of vehicles, but also Peter Hannenberger, he ah. is the unsung hero of. Holden, he, he saved, he turned Holden from being slushy, uh, terrible handling cars in the 1970s with his radio-tuned suspension. Peter, Peter Handlingberger. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, yeah. James, you, are, uh, you and I are the same vintage as I mentioned last time. With it, and you probably would have interviewed him and had some time with him you know, at the time. He was a charismatic, um, absolutely one-eyed petrol head who yep. just wanted Holden to be the best it could be, and yeah. and he uh, he presided over the you know the VT the VX era of cars. He was responsible for um, signing off a lot of these these projects that, as you said, were just shut down systematically by yes. General Motors. Um, and look what's what, what's happened. Well, and Byron, um, you'll be happy to know, as a fellow uh, constant online car shopper. Um, once I uh, read your story, I, I found myself uh, looking on Cars Guide and Auto Trader for um, uh, an adventurer. So, and, uh, you know, I, oh my I, god, I, I would love. Now one. I know what it feels like when doves cry. I'm the same. I did when I after I read that story. I went looking for a crewman because they're still cheap. Don't tell yeah. anyone, but they're still cheap. Yeah. So tell yeah. tell us, Byron, about the Commodore that's behind you. Okay, can you, you can, if you can see that, that is my uh, 1982, February 1982, um, Brisbane built uh, VH SL 2850 four speed manual 
in Manet Blue. So um, <laughs> apparently it's a cop spec up in um, in South in, in uh, New South Wales and in South Australia. These okay. the cops used these this color. Right, right. So it's a four door sedan. It's the smallest engine Commodore you can buy with a six with a six cylinder because there was obviously yep. a four cylinder Starfire. Yeah, um, it's a twenty. So it's a two point eight liter uh, one seven three in the old language. Yes, four speed manual. And I bought this car up in Armadale in New South Wales uh, a couple of years ago. Drove it back to, down to Melbourne, and it's just it for me. It connects me to what the old Holden grey engine and red engine and blue engine and oh. black engine Commodores were like. Yes. pure rear drive, simple, tough, rugged. Engineering and that 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 gearbox is a, a real you've got a man handle that gearbox to to find the the slots effectively, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there are a lot of uh, viewers out there who remember learning to drive manuals in these. It was almost truck like sometimes, and it it balked and it, it was notchy. That car that's actually one of the better gearboxes. Okay, uh, it's a four speed. It's not the five speed, which was even worse. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, Matt, Matt Campbell, are you are you familiar with? Have you ever driven one of these? Not of that vintage, no, no. 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 My um, but my first car was a HD Holden wagon um, that had had a, a four speed manual put in, um, and it was uh, constantly jamming. So nice, you know, uh, I, I get it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how, how about? How about you, Mr. Cleary? You, well, I've got to say, the car that I got my, uh, I passed my driver's license in was my brother's EJ wagon. Um, so it had compression on about three out of six cylinders, and <laughs> it it only ever had synchro mesh on the top two gears, but it uh, but it didn't have any really. So going to to get your license on that car was a real <laughs> challenge. I was I was pleased to to get it uh, first go, and I think the. Um, the person next to me was quite impressed that we got over the line. <laughs> yeah, awesome. So that was that was the last of the grey engine Holdens, the twenty two sixty two cc yeah. uh, oh. engine things. Once Such a beautiful I car. I used to yeah. borrow it. We'd go to the drive-in movies with some mates and nose it, reverse it to the screen, so you'd have uh, two people in the back of the station wagon with one speaker on their window, two banana lounges on the roof. With two people up there and another speaker for them, so wow. it was the best for drive-in movies I could ever imagine. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's how strong like, the roof was too. Uh, I've, I've got just visions of you, like Greece style, going to the drive-ins. You know, you know, I found my thrills. You know, sort of anyway, yeah. that that I've got to say, I've got to recommend to listeners and viewers that um, have a read of Byron's story because I found it really engrossing. And it is obviously a product of a long-term kind of a niggle here, a niggle there. Give me a bit of this information. What do, and and you you turn up so much post the fact um, when people. It's a bit like um, election night. You know, all the all the pressure's off, and people are ready to say what they really want to say. Um, so once once Holden had shut its doors, I suppose people are a little easier um, with with what they want to share. But it's a really great story. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, just before you go, just further yep. to that. There are diagrams in that story that oh, are directly right. from Holden. Which, yeah. So we're not we're not speculating here, folks. Mm -hmm. These it's are facts. you can actually see the diagrams. It, what was going to happen? Yeah. Exactly. So a little that's schematic. What makes it, yeah. Yeah. And that was probably the the biggest get for us to be able to. Uh, we obviously built the story around that. So yeah, it's it's worth seeing people. So yeah. Terrific. We'll look. We'll move. We'll move from there to vehicles that have actually been manufactured and seen the light of day, to the point where we've actually been driving them, and give you a bit of a, a thumbnail view. Although Matt Campbell, I'll start with you. Yes. You're you're somewhat li limited in what you can share, but but fill us in as far as you can. No, it's a secret. Can't tell you right. anything. Okay. Um, well, now, no. Byron. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but in all honesty, um, I've been uh, spending a little bit of time in the all-new Isuzu D-Max. Uh, as you may have seen on our uh, Facebook channel, we've been putting it through its paces across a bunch of different tests. Can't say anything about drive impressions just yet, mm. um, but it certainly has uh, some kind of 
eye-catching appeal because we've had a few uh, D-Max drivers of the previous generation do the whole, whoa, head turn thing. Really? Uh, Great. Yeah. 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 So um, there's standout elements like, um, you know, it's still – I think uh, one of the commenters on YouTube last week said that uh, it looks too much like the old one. It still does look a lot like the old one, but it's got, you know, the more slimline profile headlights. And um, as we came to term it, uh, the uh, the uh, vampire fang grill um, on the spec that we had, because it's like <laughs> a pair of fangs, uh, maybe yeah, right. like a spider face grill. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly taken some uh, big steps in terms of design. Um, it's smaller uh, nose yep. to tail in dual cab spec, but with a longer wheelbase. Um, yep. And if you know anything about wheelbase, you'll know that that could mean better comfort. Um, we can't tell you anything about that just yet. But uh, yep. also, yeah, obviously, there's much more to say about the engine and um, the outputs and the transmission as well. Uh, and also... You know, generally what it's like to drive both on-road and off-road. And we are Good. going to be covering this car. So just be prepared. There's, by there's the an time, onslaught coming. By the time next week's podcast rolled around, we will have published and uh, we, we'll be able to speak a little more freely about uh, about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've yeah. got to say, one of the design details, kind of random, but the one I like is the taillight design on the D-Max. I think they've done a great job. I, I really, For what it's worth, I really like that kind of double loop kind of treatment on, yeah. on the tail lights. Um, yeah, and the, quite the a mature thing. The LED spec lights on the LSU and X terrain are are really quite something. Um, and the the whole the way that they've managed to keep the rear tailgate sort of design the same but very different. Um, okay. And it's still so identifiable as an Isuzu, and I think that's really important for the brand, um, but also, yeah. uh, you know, takes a bit of a step forward. So, yeah, stay tuned. We've got so much stuff to tell you right. about it. Great. Yeah, Terrific. Yeah. That's good. That's uh, wetting yeah, the think, appetite for sure. Sorry, Byron. I think that there's, um, yeah. oh, just, uh, you know, I think Isuzu has a real opportunity to swoop in and get all those Colorado owners and people who th- – who kind of associate Holden with Isuzu and Isuzu with Holden yes. throughout yes. history from the Gemini through to uh, the Rodeo and the Colorado, obviously. So, yep. and it's the timing is perfect for him. Yeah, a, yep. a good looking truck that still has a bit of that flavor. And yes. as we know, um, design sales and this, and as you said, uh, M4 people, uh, current D Max drivers like are noticing this in the street. Yes, and that yes. is that is a good sign. Well, if for, you if you, if you had your choice, as long as it's start. comfortable and refined and quiet, things that the last one wasn't class leading in, <laughs> uh, I will be yes. I'll be happy. So. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, if you had your choice of starting out with a reputation for simplicity and durability, and then building that into something that's a little more cosmetically appealing and and comfier. Rather than the other way around, I, I know I'd be I'd be taking option A. You know, mm-hmm. you you want that really solid platform um, to build from. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They've got a massive opportunity. Big time, big time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, now we will move on to you, Byron, uh, and you've nice. been in a markedly different kind of vehicle. It's from South Korea, but not one of the predictable brands. That's right. So. Uh, uh, I recently was driving the Kia Seltos S and uh, reviewed that for Cars Guide. And then I jumped into the Sanyong Corando, uh, a car that caught my eye when I first saw it uh, last year because it is actually a beautifully proportioned SUV. And I thought, gee, that is, you don't, you just don't associate Sanyong with beauty. I'm sorry. (laughs) Hello. uh, which one can we – hello, Rexton. Uh, Stavic. Oh, the Stavic. Uh, Ken Greenley's um, masterpiece. Anyway, uh, so I was quite attracted by the car's styling, particularly its uh, profile. And then uh, because we're in lockdown, I'm stuck with this car for six weeks. And I'm okay. stuck as if that's a bad thing. But actually, I have become very fond of this inexpensive and larger than a Seltos SUV uh, with a pretty impressive interior. I, mm. I find that uh, it's it's extremely contemporary. Um, the, the model I'm driving is the ELX petrol 1.5 turbo, which 
retails at $30,990 drive away. So it really compares with um, high 20s uh, SUVs before yep. you add the on-road costs. And its sizing puts it bang into CX-5. Right, really. yeah. right, right. Um, that, so I'm driving this car thinking, so I, I'm, I'm driving a car with a 1.5-litre turbo, uh, a Azen a, a six-speed torque converter automatic, so it doesn't have any dual-clutch kind of issues in terms mm. of um, you know, roll, uh, rolling back on hills or you know, laggy starts or you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's got quite a bit of punch. Uh, mm. It seems to handle quite well. But the interior mm. is nice, and it provides a lot of space and um, practicality, and a seven-year warranty. So yeah. now I'm thinking, why on earth isn't this getting garnering the same sort of um, attention as the Seltos? Mm -hmm. Given that it's, um, you can actually get one for twenty-six nine nine zero drive away in that specification. Yeah, that yes. actually makes it less expensive than yes. the cheapest Seltos. So I think anyway, is it, uh, isn't it primarily because Sanyong's uh, a pretty well-kept secret, you know, that, that that brand is just not high profile in the same way as uh, Kia and Hyundai, who possibly have deeper pockets at this stage? Yeah, it didn't start off like that, though, because Sanyong uh, pretty much hit the market running quite strongly with a Musso in the late 90s, yeah. where yep. people would put That's true. Uh, Mercedes yep. badges on it. And mm. I think they kept that momentum going fairly solidly through uh, since then with the Utes, but definitely for the passenger cars, but some of those passenger cars, as we, we touched on earlier, were just so ugly that when they were born, the doctor slapped the mother's face. The previous generation Carando was uh, handsome, I would have said, um, but this you're right, this new one takes it to the dynamic where uh, it does have edges and angles and it's more square and the proportions like you say are right the the side profile is right um and i think it will appeal to more people so long as they can tell more people about it i don't think there's much of a ad campaign for any sangyong product and i'm not so sure that they're uh, as invested um as they could be in the brand like i went to drive this corando in in korea last year or whenever it was um and i was quite taken by it I'm, I'm the same mm -hmm. as you, Brian. I think it's yeah. quite a so, compelling thing. So, gentlemen, you may not know this, but talking about design, Mahindra, who owns Sanyong, also owns the Pininfarina company. Yes. So Pininfarina would have had a hand in the design. So knowing that, and I came to I, – I learned that. I, I knew about it years ago, but I forgot. Mm. I saw the Corando and I thought, that's a good-looking thing. And then I did my research and thought, hang on. Right. This is that's why it's such a beautifully proportioned so, car. So, yeah. so what we've got is a car that's uh, pretty solid value, that um, to most people seems to be appealing visually, that has a strong ownership package. the The other thing that comes to my mind is how does it go in terms of uh, fit and finish, the, the the way in which it's been put together, and just that initial impression of the the quality of the car. How does that strike you that way? I would say that this car is on a par with possibly a Kona or, a, yep. or, or you know, or, or a Seltos. Or, yep. um, and to me, because of its contemporaryness, seems a lot more modern and right. appealing than, say, an ASX's dashboard and interior. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, there, there are a couple of um, idiosyncratic things about the car which are kind of charming. Oh, okay. Except for the fact that it chimes and bobs and beeps <laughs> everything while you boing, boing, boing. Okay. But, uh, but you know what? That car, there's nothing to suggest that this car is made for developing nations anymore. This, the right. Corando, in my mind, uh, so far, and, and because I, I qualify this because I'm stuck in lockdown Melbourne, it's in stage four yep. lockdown, so I can't take it on the, um, on, on my driving route, which is quite yep. demanding, but as an urban Family size SUV at yeah. that price, it is quite the compelling proposition. Terrific. That's good. That's a very, very good thumbnail. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Byron. And I You're will welcome. finish things off by saying that I've been in an altogether different kind of machine. <laughs> I've, I've, I've found myself in the BMW M8 uh, competition Grand Coupe. Now, that's on the back of the fact that I'm in a long-term M850i Grand yeah, Coupe. So yeah. 
all of a sudden, Honest Jim's Motors had a couple of BMWs at the front of the forecourt. One was actually up on the container in the corner as car of the week, um, <laughs> that, that being the, the M8. Um, but it's an even more powerful version of this 8 Series Grand Coupe thing, 466 kilowatts, mm. um, which is plenty of kilowatts. And the, the M850i uh, is 390, which is immense anyway. You're talking 3.3 seconds, 0 to 100 now. That's, that's supercar territory. Um, and it's $349,000. It's, it's before you put it on the road. Um, and it has that same 4.4-litre twin-turbo V8, but it's been wicked up to, to bigger numbers, eight-speed auto, all-wheel drive. And actually, having had the opportunity to drive the two of them, if you're in that fairly rarefied part of the market, I would be opting for the M850i. It's, it is all the 8 Series Grand Coupe that you need. It is a beautiful car. I think the M8, with its extra power, comes a slight loss of refinement and the, the suspension isn't quite as forgiving. And yet that M850i is still such a satisfying car to drive, even if you want to get half enthusiastic about it. It responds beautifully. So I think it's, it's smashing a walnut with a sledgehammer. It's just how big... <laughs> you know, the sledgehammer has to be. And, and I think the M8s is just a bit too big, um, yeah. but a really interesting experience to drive that car. Weren't we saying the other day, JC, that you could possibly just save even more money? I mean, if you're buying oh, yeah. that sort of car, you're not looking at saving money, right? So no. um, you could just get an 840i. Well, that's right? true. Oh, that's true. I mean, that's the thing. Once you're over a certain price and performance threshold, emotion takes over. Pragmatism it's... is not the guiding principle. It's, it is about, in fact, you get to a point where spending more is better yes. because that's more impressive. It's a, it's a more elaborate expression of your wealth and success yeah. or whatever it might be. So of course, a by... million different reasons why people buy these cars. By going from the 40 to the 50, you're getting from a 3-litre three, 6 to a 4.4-litre V8 yeah. and you're spending $73,000 more uh, yeah. for the privilege. But yeah. Yeah, you're getting the cachet. I get it. I mean, both <laughs> of these cars, if you really wanted to get down to the nuts and bolts, they're built for the left lane on the autobahn. That, mm -hmm. that's, that is their habitat. Um, so they're out of their environment here, um, and people are buying them for altogether different reasons. Not going to go there. I mean, each to their own. But, but I think, it, yeah. Do, do you think having uh, spent a bit of time in those vehicles and – uh, recently having driven the Audi RS6 and RS7, yep. does it not make Audi just stand out as a value proposition I, you can't I, ignore? I, I find that hard to disagree with. I, I think that um, RS6 particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan um, of the RS6. You're talking appreciably less. You, you're below 200000 I think, for the RS6. Is that right? Uh, let me check. I think it's a little more, um, but it? it's, it's cheaper than it was. It's like you're talking 150k difference, um, and in terms, sorry, 216,000. 16. So you know, in terms of the the quality of the design, the way in which it's executed, the performance, both those Audis RS6 and RS7, yeah, they seem like a, a real value proposition um, yeah. in in comparison. I must say, and that could be to the detriment <laughs> of the Audi brand if you're going on that. Well, I spent more than you. I spent, mate, it's. <laughs> That's why some of those ludicrous option prices, you know, here's the pearl paint on a Rolls-Royce and it costs $24,000 to have that paint shape. That is a benefit because mm -hmm. when you're with your wealthy friends, you can see that paint. You know how much that cost me? Yeah. $24,000. <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> it, it's, a different, it's a different thing operating once you cross a certain financial oh. threshold we'll never know about it don't worry. oh my god that just seems like <laughs> just seems like fantasy land you know? <laughs> Jesus. well look that is a perfect segue talking of fantasy land it is time to head into musk watch musk watch <laughs> now okay <laughs> The first thing we've got to say is that um, Elon has had another light bulb moment and he has gone on to the Twitters and Teslarati, um, a, a Tesla-focused website, has said that Teslas will play elevator music for pedestrians through external speakers. 
Now, this is because on Twitter, Elon said, new Tesla feature coming that enables your car to play snake jazz or Polynesian elevator music through its outside speakers wherever you go. Is now, that um, Polynesian music that's played in elevators or ele elevators, the music that they play in elevators in Polynesia? Well, Polynesian music to me is like bit drums and, and grass skirts and a bit of, you know, yeah. hip action. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether that's elevator or, music. Well, I, I thought, of, is it pedestrian music for um, external uh, pedestrians, yeah. Well, that, as opposed to pedestrian, pedestrian that, music, uh, yeah. The um, the NHTSA <laughs> you know, in America, uh, National Highway Transport Safety Authority, um, has mandated that electric cars should have external speakers such that they can emit a noise below thirty kilometres an hour to warn pedestrians of their presence. Mm -hmm. So this is Elon just saying, all right, well, we're not just going to have a boring tone or whatever. I'm going to make it. Polynesian elevator music, whatever that is, and uh, snake jazz, which is a Rick and Morty uh, reference. There was an entire episode of Rick and Morty uh, de dedicated to snake jazz. So it's a, it's a classic kind of Elon uh, play, fairly juvenile, uh, but uh, arresting. And it's interesting, on Tesla Rati, there are a few comments to the story, so I plucked out a, through a few. Susan Peace Bannett says, rehab is better done sooner than later. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dinosaur Neil said, Tesla owners, to double down on insufferable. And, wow. and I think that's true, too. If you're going to start putting, putting noises out the outside of your car, Julie Larson Green just says, can you make my windshield wipers work instead? <laughs> um, which is a pretty good call if she's having a problem with her Tesla windscreen wipers. But speaking of problems, Pledge Times has run a story. This is how Elon Musk's satellites spoil the sky. And we've been here before. We've talked about um, SpaceX um, wanting to, to put up a whole bunch of satellites to bring the web to the world, to places that aren't currently serviced. Ostensibly, a community service. Everybody can have web. Actually, another way to make money, you know, mm -hmm. another way to make a lot of money. Um, and the Spanish Society of Astronomy has launched an inquiry into this because there's seemingly no control on very wealthy individuals being to fire whatever they like, being able to fire whatever they like up into space. You know, when you think about it, they're saying they'll fill the sky with devices that do not have among their priorities the damage they cause to science, astrophotography or exploration with future space junk. So we're filling up. We've not only started ruining the planet, we're ruining the space around it. So there are going to be 12,000 of these devices Jeff Bezos plans to launch 3,000. There's a project in China that's going to put a lot of these micro satellites up there, and no one is seemingly in control. And uh, it's just extraordinary. There's a, we'll put some images up. There's a photographer in Spain that specialises on these um, kind of landscapes of the night sky that are truly breathtaking. And he's been um, seeing these scratches across his images, which are all of these satellites uh, ruining his photographs. So... Um, I would I would direct him in the uh, direction of Photoshop, but um, he's still he's still saying <laughs> that it's a problem for him in terms of capturing these, and and visual astronomers are saying it's a big problem for them as well. So that continues on. Um, now, also this week was a bit of a turning point because Elon ascended to the fourth wealthiest person in the world right. um, on the back of a surging share price for Tesla. He's now worth more than $90 billion. Wow. Um, and that puts him behind Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, and Jeff Bezos. Now, Bezos is out there. He's worth $195 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. So he's just this obscenely wealthy person. But uh, now Elon has joined the quartet of the four richest uh, people in the world. And that's because... Drum roll, please. The share price this week is over $2,000. $2,001.83. It was $1,621 last week. So in a, in a, a seven-day period, it has leapt above $2,000. And the Motley Fool um, has theorised as to why this has happened, and they're still sheeting a lot of it home to this five-to-one split um, of mm -hmm. the shares that's going to 
not increase the capitalization of the company, but make shares more affordable for, you know, mum and pop uh, investors. It has gone up nearly 800% over the past 12 months and 24% in the past five trading days alone. Wow. So the, the growth is now pretty much vertical on that, that share price. Um, the other little bit of information is that Panasonic has announced that it plans to invest more than $100 million next year in battery production capacity at Tesla's factory in Nevada. So the supply of batteries for Tesla has been firmed up and increased. So that increases their production potential and on it goes. So there is some, some sound basis to it, but a lot of it seems to be just emotional sentiment driving this thing uh, to the stratosphere. Yeah. It's crazy. And folks, I remember just... 12 months ago we were saying, surely Tesla can't last. Like... What Great has point. happened? They, well, two years ago, we were saying Tesla's going to bust. Yeah. You know, that the, the, they're on their knees. Well, you know, history is will, will certainly show examples where things that go up must come down eventually. Um, mm-hmm. Just to, uh, just very quickly, um, Bezos and Zuckerberg and uh, and Musk might, might have, might be the richest people in the world, but... Um, Adjusted for inflation, they're still nowhere near as rich as the Vanderbilts and the right. uh, the right. Rockefellers were um, in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. So um, we've been here before, guys, and yeah. th- those people are no longer on the list of the top three or top ten because <laughs> what goes up must come, come down. down. So yeah, yeah, that's true. That's so true. Now, it, and also, everything must come to an end including this podcast, because we have now uh, reached the finish line. And I would like to say thank you, Matt. Thank you. And thank you, Byron. Oh, you're so welcome. And thanks thanks to our production trailblazer, water slide architect and rugby league genius, Mr. Mm -hmm. Pritchard, for his technical intensity. Today, he's wearing a T-shirt saying, in my defence, I was left unsupervised. Um, He's also wearing jumper pants and AstroTurf Crocs. Oh. So for those uh, in North America, sweater pants, but uh, a sweater turned into pants. It's an amazing, uh, amazing look. It's a Please look. pass on the word about the podcast and let us know your thoughts by searching for Cars Guide on Facebook and Instagram using the hashtag CGPodcast or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. If you're an Apple podcast listener, please rate and review us. And remember, you can watch us on YouTube. Uh, but before we go, what do you do if you see a spaceman? Park in it, dude. <laughs> Thank you for that. That was great. <laughs> <It's> brilliant. <laughs>